This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Hayesville, North Carolina. Yeah, I got it right this morning. <laughs> Remember, I'm not in Middletown. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call here on Sports Country Radio. It is a, a chilly morning here. Uh, temperatures in the, uh, I don't know, upper 20s here, but I guess it could be a lot worse if I was still back up in New England. I know you folks are under the deep freeze up there. Wind chill temperatures are supposed to be below zero. I saw like in uh, uh, parts of New England, uh, the high temperature today is supposed to be like 10 or 11 degrees. So uh, y'all can keep it. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Uh, late night last night, stayed up to watch the college football championship game. And it was a good one. It was a fun. Georgia breaks a 40-year drought, or 41 years. The last time they won a national title, Herschel Walker uh, was their running back. So that's how long ago it was, 1980. Vince Dooley was the coach back then. And Vince Dooley was actually in the house uh, last night, which was kind of cool. Um, uh, they showed him towards the end of the game, getting ready to come out and celebrate with uh, the Georgia team and the Georgia fans. And... Uh, this was all about defense last night. The Georgia defense was just uh, smothering. And look, you know, you look at the final numbers. Bryce Young, the Heisman Trophy winner, uh, threw for over 300 yards, 35 of 57. But he threw a couple of picks. They were all over him all night. You know, they uh, I think they sacked him uh, three times last night. The first time they played in the SEC championship game, when Alabama uh, beat Georgia fairly handily, uh, Georgia couldn't touch Young. Well, last night they brought the pressure, and when they didn't hit him or they weren't bringing him down, they were pressuring him. So, I mean, the kid's a good quarterback, but that defense was just smothering last night. And what a great story Stetson Bennett, the kid from Georgia, is. I mean, this is a kid that wanted to go to the University of Georgia, wanted to play there so badly, was a walk-on when he came out of high school. This was a Georgia kid, was a walk-on, uh, ended up transferring to a junior college and played there. And then uh, Kirby Smart called him and offered him a scholarship and brought him back. And what a – I mean, just – you can't write this stuff. This is a movie. I mean, I don't want to get go crazy. This isn't Rudy, okay? You know, this isn't the walk-on, uh, you know, from Notre Dame. We, we all saw that, you know, the movie Rudy, and a lot of that was over-dramatized anyway. I mean, it, this isn't quite that. But you could see on the face of Stetson Bennett last night, the Georgia quarterback, how much it meant to him. The kid was in tears. As soon as, uh, you know, the interception happened that clinched the game, they had an eight-point lead. The interception happens – 
and they end up uh, taking the bigger lead, and the you could just see it in the kid's face. He just started bawling how much it meant to him. And, and this is a kid that didn't have the support of a lot of the Georgia fans. You know, a lot of the Georgia fans didn't want him to be the starting quarterback. They wanted JT Daniels. You know, they, they thought JT Daniels should have been the guy. You know, and Stetson Bennett struggled a little bit at times last night, but he made some huge throws. And and he didn't, I mean, he came through when they needed him to come through. His nickname is the Mailman. You know, not to be confused with uh, with Carl Malone, but, you know, this is a kid that, that going into that last drive had had an okay day. I mean, you know, 13 for 22, I think, you know, maybe a buck 50. But on that last drive where they took the eight-point lead, uh, three for three for 68 yards. And actually, that was that gave them the lead after uh, Alabama had scored. So they went up by a point when they tried a two-point conversion. It didn't come through. But Bennett was three for three for 68 yards on that drive. Eight minutes left in the game. And then it was all defense. The thing I didn't understand in this game was that Georgia has the eight-point lead. Alabama's got the ball. And, you know, and we're down to, you know, a couple of minutes left. But in, instead of kind of meticulously trying to work their way down the field with some intermediate passes, they kept trying to throw bombs. You know, and look, I know that you've got the Heisman Trophy winner there. You know, and but to me, throwing the ball 40, 50 yards down the field on three play, straight plays isn't the way to go here. You still have some timeouts in your pocket. You know, throw the ball 10, 15 yards. See if you can get some yards after the catch and work your way down the field instead of trying to hit the home run. So, I, you know, I felt that there was some uh, misplay calling on Alabama's part there. You know, I mean, what the hell do I know, right? But it just, to, to me, it doesn't make sense. That's a sense. It's an all-or-nothing kind of thing. And when that Georgia team had been, you know, uh, all over you all night, if you're Bryce Young and you're Nick Saban, you're looking at that in the offensive coordinator, you're looking at that going, you know what? Let's just try to get the ball out of out of his hands quickly, not give that defense a chance to make a play, and let's see if we can make it happen that way. But instead, you get yourself in a desperation situation. You know, I mean, it, so to me, it just, uh, I thought there was some, uh, uh, you know, and look, Nick Saban's going to say, look, you know, fat boy, uh, how many national championships have you won? I mean, I get that. I'm just saying, all I'm saying is is that it just seems strange to me. But a great game, a fun game, and now that I live I live on the Georgia border, my wife works in Georgia, I'm literally, you know, five minutes from the Georgia border, so everybody here uh, is a Georgia Bulldogs fan. 
So I'm in uh, Georgia country, so a lot of celebrating going on. There's probably people that haven't gone to bed yet. Um, but uh, And Kirby Smart gets the monkey off his back, finally beats his uh, old friend and mentor, Nick Saban. And, uh, you know, it was a long time coming. And <laughs> the, 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 uh, the thing I loved last night, I loved it when uh, – the uh, interception at the end of the game, uh, Kelly Ringo intercepts uh, this ball that was thrown deep. It was underthrown. He picks it off, uh, and he goes the other way and ends up scoring a touchdown. Did you see how high in the air that uh, Kirby Smart jumped on that interception? It would have made an uh, NBA center proud. Uh, he w- he got some he got some air. And, and then he's following his uh, defensive back all the way down the field, and he's yelling at him to go down. He wants him to fall down on the ground so that you don't risk fumbling the football and giving it back to Alabama. He's like, you know, go down. He's pointing at the ground, go down and yelling at him. And, uh, yeah, no, never mind. Ringo just said we're going to score the touchdown here, and, and that was the end of that. So fun game, uh, long game. I mean, really long game. It was uh, uh, three and a half hours for a college football game. I mean, you know, and I'm going to tell you, this is this is one of the things I get, I get really irritated where people will say baseball games are too long. You know, we got to shorten baseball games. And, I'll, and I will grant you, there are some things in baseball games that are frustrating. And, and I do believe that, you know, something could be done to speed baseball games up. I'll give you that. But people that try to tell me that baseball games are too long and football so much more, uh, so much better of a sport because of all the action and, and the games move along and baloney. There's no reason for a game to take that long. And when you think about it, everybody talks about all the action, all the action in football. Think about this for a minute. When the play goes on, a play lasts, what, six, seven seconds? And then you generally have somewhere between 30 and 40 seconds between plays. You know, we talk about a pitch clock in baseball where they want to make it 20 seconds between pitches because there's not enough action going on. Well, hell, in an NFL game, sometimes you have 40 seconds between plays. So, you know... These people that want to tell you, you know, look, if you want to make the argument to me that, you know, uh, basketball and hockey have far more action than baseball, I can't argue that. It's nonstop, right? There's stuff going on all the time. But people, and look, I know football is king. I get that. But to tell me that, that football has so much more action than a baseball game is, to me, it's a load of bull. There's no reason. Look, uh, you know, 60 minutes on the clock in an NFL game. 60 minutes, okay? Sometimes takes three and a half, three hours and 45 minutes to play a damn game. So, you know, takes longer than the average. Right now, the average football game, I would wager, and I could be wrong, but I would wager the average football game lasts longer than the average baseball game. So, you know, and look, this isn't to say the game wasn't fun to watch last night. It's not to say that football stinks. You know, I get, I, I like watching football as much as the next guy. 
All I'm saying is is that we need to calm down sometimes when we t- start talking about uh, how long games last. You know? Because, you know, football can be just as plotting as a baseball game can. You know, but we seem to, for, because there's a cloud of dust for, you know, seven, eight, nine seconds uh, every every minute, we get excited. Yeah, so anyway, uh, enough of that rant. But a good game. Congratulations to the University of Georgia. Um, and you look, you know, Alabama and Georgia are going to be right back at the top of the SEC next year. I know there's been other coaching changes, and you know, people think that Brian Kelly is going to be able to bring LSU back. The bottom line is this. The SEC is so much better than the rest of the country when it comes to the sport of college football that it's not even close. Seriously. I mean, you could take, uh, you know, you say whatever you want about the Big Ten, and and I don't even want to hear people talk about the Pac-12. You realize the Pac-12, everybody's talking about, well, the Pac-12, Pac-12, they're so much better, and there's all this East Coast bias because, you know, the, the, the teams don't get on uh, television in prime time, and you don't see them as much because their games start 10, 11 o'clock at night. You know what? I don't want to hear that crap. You know why? You know what the Pac-12 was in college bowl games this year? They were 0-5. Pac-12 couldn't win a, uh, a college bowl game this year. The SEC is far superior to every other conference, and it's not close. And I don't know, at least I don't believe it's close. You know, I'm sure people would, you know, that watch more of it than I do would, would argue with me. But I don't know how you correct that. I mean, it's going to take a long time for these other conferences to catch up. You know, the Big Ten is, is to me, is second. The Big Ten, it was, you know, regardless of what happened with Michigan this year. and uh, You know, but Ohio State, that, look, the Big Ten is a, a solid conference. Big 12 is, is a solid conference. But outside of that, you know, they talk about the Power Five conferences. I don't want to hear about. I don't want to hear about the ACC. I don't want to hear about, you know, uh, the Southeastern Conference and all. You know, I mean, uh, not South, the uh, uh, the Mountain West Conference. Everybody, like, well, the Mountain West was five and one in bowl games. The Mountain West stinks. You know, you put them against the top teams. Look, it's kind of like everybody gets excited about Cincinnati. Cincinnati got their asses handed to them. You know, and did they make a better showing than a lot of people thought they would? Yeah, they did. But it's look, it's the SEC, the Big Ten, and everybody else, in my opinion. You could throw some a couple of schools from the Big Twelve in there, but by and large, it's not close. And would it shock me if we saw these two teams back in the national championship game next year? Nope, not at all, not at all. So anyway, congratulations to the University of Georgia. Um, and the axes began falling in the NFL yesterday. And, of course, we, we, uh, we got the first news well on Sunday with Vic Fangio from Denver. That was no surprise there. But the surprising news, of course, came yesterday morning when we were on the air and the Dolphins let Brian Flores go. I still have thought about that a lot yesterday. I still don't get that. And, and I'm going to tell you this, too. And I don't want to, I'm not turning this into anything, a racial thing, but it's a bad look for the NFL, right? Brian Flores is one of three black head coaches in the NFL. 
Brian Flores had back-to-back winning seasons after and taking over a crappy team. You know, his first year did a good job. The last two years, winning records. I know they got off to a hideous start this year. They got off to a one and seven start, but he kept them relevant right to the very end. And he beat the New England Patriots twice. You know, and ruined the Patriots' seed. You know, the Patriots might not have had to go to Buffalo. The Patriots might have had a chance for a home game had they been able to beat the Miami Dolphins at least once this year. So I think it's a bad look for the NFL when you've got a guy who's a blackhead coach, one of three in the NFL, and has a winning record, and you still fire him. And I'm telling you what, if they end up firing him to bring in Jim Harbaugh, Excuse me. Uh, just it's not you know. Look, and I'm not saying that that uh, you know Roger Goodell should step in here and say, "Hey, you can't fire blackhead coaches." I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying that is that in a sport that is predominantly black, just like you know in basketball, at least in basketball, we have more blackhead coaches, you know, and it and it kind of. Uh, makes more sense, if that makes any sense. But in football, to have just three black head coaches, and we, look, this isn't something new. This has been talked about for years. But when you've got one that's successful and you fire him anyway, you know, I mean, that's to me, and I said this, you know, yesterday, you can't blame Brian Flores for being in the same division as the Buffalo Bills and the New England Patriots. And when, you know, he holds his own against those two teams, how can you still fire him? I don't get it. So we'll see what they're going to do. I, it's, it's, it's going to be, I, I think it's going to look, be a bad look if it turns out to be Jim Harbaugh. Although I will say this, look, and, and you know, the owner of the team could do whatever he wants. Okay, I get that. Um. But if you are going to bring in Jim Harbaugh there after firing a guy like Brian Flores, it better work. It better work. But, you know, again, you know, at the end of the day, it's not my money. It's his. He can do what he wants. It's just it's still think it's a bad look. Now, uh, yesterday, uh, everybody kind of expected Joe Judge from the New York Giants to get fired. He did not. Instead, Dave Gettleman, the general manager, retired retired if he hadn't retired he would have been fired uh there's no question about that get look Edelman's uh, 70 years old 71 years old cancer survivor uh his tenure as the uh Giants general manager has been a train wreck there's no ifs ands or buts about it so you knew that had to happen uh and, and I think I'm not and I don't blame Joe Judge necessarily. Look, you talk to the players, and the players seem very supportive of their head coach. You know, it's not uh, Joe Judge's fault, you know, that Saquon Barkley got hurt. You know, uh, that could have made a difference. It's not his fault that Daniel Jones may not be the quarterback that everybody thought he was. You know, I the 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 lack of success for the New York Giants to me, you can put right at the feet 
of John Mara and Steve Tisch, the owners. They were the ones that decided to hire Gettleman. And it has uh, it was a disastrous decision. And uh, they are going to have to uh, search far and wide uh, to get somebody in there to right this ship. And I think, you know, I again, I think Joe Judge isn't the problem here. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe a new GM, and maybe, you know, a healthy Giants team, and they do some work in free agency, and uh, they draft well. Maybe it makes a difference next year, and maybe we find out that, you know, eight games into next season that Joe Judge is the problem, and Joe Judge needs to go. But... Uh, he met with the owners yesterday. He's already contacted some of the members of the team talking about preparing for next season as if he's coming back. So it sounds like he is. Uh, so who's not coming back next year? Mike Zimmer from the Minnesota Vikings and Matt Nagy from the Chicago Bears. In addition, by the way, to those two coaches being fired, the respective general managers were also fired. So they everybody's cleaning house. So uh, Rick Spielman is out as the GM of the Vikings and uh, Ryan Pace out as the GM of the Bears. Uh, You know, look, there is no doubt that when you look at these teams this year that they underperformed. The Giants were supposed to stink, right? Um, But I don't think anybody expected the Minnesota Vikings to struggle the way that they did this year, you know, and and I think that uh, Zimmer's paying the price for that. They ended up finishing eight and nine. The Bears were just hideous, six and eleven. The biggest problem with the Bears, you know, and we have this conversation every year, is when are they going to get the quarterback position stabilized? You know, that's been a big problem for them. You know, in Minnesota. You know, you've got Kirk Cousins, and, you know, our friend Dan Zampano has been a big supporter of Kirk Cousins, but Kirk Cousins was not very good this year. But when you've got guys like Dalvin Cook and Adam Thielen, and look, they've got a lot of talent on that offense, you expected them to be better than 8-9. and nine. Now, the one thing I'll say is Zimmer held his own against the Packers during his coaching career. I think that he was 8-9 uh, and nine against the Packers. And considering how good the Packers have been, that's nothing to uh, uh, to sneeze at. Uh, Matt Nagy, not not, not so much. Uh, one in seven against uh, the best team in that division. So they have already uh, started the searches. Uh, and I know that, uh, I think it was Denver has reached out to the Patriots to talk to Gerard Mayo. Uh, so maybe... Uh, He's going to at least get his first uh, head coaching interview. Uh, I still think Brian Flores is going to get interviews. His name hasn't popped up with anybody yet because, you know, Brian Flores is probably still trying to figure out what the hell happened. But I think he'll have a head coaching job. I think he's going to get one of these jobs. I think he has to. I think we're going to see Byron Leftwich get a job somewhere. And I hope Eric Bieniemy gets a job. Look, he's done a great job as the offensive coordinator with the Kansas City Chiefs. And I thought he was going to get a job last year, um, and I hope he gets one this year. Look, there's still going to be uh, some heads that will roll. Uh, I don't think we're done yet. We don't know what the uh, what the uh, Raiders are going to do as far as their head coach goes, but you could make the case 
that they don't need to make a change. You know, that perhaps uh, uh, what was done in, uh, in the interim and then bringing them back with all the distractions and everything else uh, would not surprise me if uh, that job stays right where it is. But I think uh, David Culley could be in trouble in Houston. I'm sure Matt Rule's going to get fired in Carolina. I'd be shocked if he doesn't. Absolutely shocked. Um, but as of right now, the only uh, axes to actually fall yesterday were on the heads of Mike Zimmer and Matt Nagy, and it looks like Joe Judge will survive. I, I don't think uh, I don't think a lot of Giant fans are going to be happy about that. But hey, uh, again, I'm not sure that Joe Judge is the problem, and we'll find out whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, you know, this isn't. Uh, you know, I, I don't see that he's made. And I, I look, I got to be honest, I've watched three or four Giants games this year and probably not even all of them at the time, but I can't recall watching the games and saying, man, what is this guy doing? I've said that plenty of times this year against guys like uh, uh, Staley from the Chargers and Harbaugh with Baltimore, like what the hell is, you know, what the hell are they thinking? I've even said that with Bill Belichick. I said it this past weekend, you know, when they decide to uh, to punt the ball on a fourth and short inside the Miami territory late in the first half. I was like, what are you doing? But I can't recall saying that a lot with Joe Judge. He's had to deal with so many injuries and stuff this year that that I, I, I'll give him a pass for this year. And if I'm the Giants, you know, i probably bring him back. And then maybe we evaluate at midseason. Or even early season, maybe you know seven, eight, nine games in, and if it's not getting it done, then then you then you cut ties. But I know Giant fans have been calling for his head, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Thirty-one minutes past the hour, we're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's thirty-four minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on a Tuesday morning. Programming note: No show tomorrow. Uh, we'll have tomorrow off, uh, got some things got to take care of, uh, around here, got some more construction I got to do, uh, as we, uh, try to get this studio in shape and, uh, frankly, get the house in shape since the move. Uh, so no show tomorrow, but we will be back on, uh, Thursday. Uh, Bruce Arians, uh, press conference yesterday was, uh, talking to some reporters and, uh, said that, uh, in his opinion, it will be a travesty if Tom Brady doesn't win the MVP award. Um, you know, I don't know if I don't know if it would be a travesty, but you know, and I have to be honest. I I look I looked at the numbers afterwards because my first thought was, "What are you kidding me?" I mean, look, you know, there's uh, you know, obviously what Aaron Rodgers has done, his old you know off the field stuff aside, uh, he's had a great year, and you know, uh, we've had some great. Individual performances, uh, Taylor in Indianapolis, Cup in uh, with the Rams. You know, there's been some guys that have had some great seasons. Uh, but then you look at what Brady has done, and, and maybe you know, I think there, there's a there's a point with him that it's almost like Tom Brady fatigue, right? We're so tired of talking about Tom Brady, and we take what Tom Brady does for granted, uh, but. Look, he led the league this year in completions, attempts, passing yards, and touchdowns. 
had 43 touchdowns this year. Threw for 5,300 yards, a career high at age 44. His quarterback rating is just a tick less than Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, for people that are, you know, into that thing, his, uh, uh, his QBR was 68.5. Aaron Rodgers was 68.8. So they're essentially the same. And he completed almost 68% of his passes. And let's not forget that he's 44 years old, <laughs> right? Uh, which makes it even more remarkable. Uh, look, does Brady need another MVP? He's got three of them. You know, uh, he's got what, f- what five Super Bowl MVPs? I mean, you know, I don't. At the end of the day, do I think he cares about that? I, you know, I don't think he really does. All he cares about winning. He wants to win another Super Bowl. There's no question about that. I'm not sure they've got the horses to do that uh, with all the injuries they've had late in the season. But I don't think he cares about the MVP. I could be wrong. But he plays this game to win championships. That's the reason he's still playing. You know, I, I said to you know my wife Barb the other day we were we were uh, we were watching the the Bucks game, and I said you know, and I've said this on the air here before. I hope everybody can appreciate what you're watching, whether you're a Patriot fan or not. It doesn't matter. This guy is remarkable. He's, uh, we may never see that again, ever. Or I said to Barbara, I said, if we see it again, I'll be dead. I won't see it. I mean, this guy is playing in his mid-40s better than guys play in their mid-20s. You know, and I know that some of this is, you know, had the chip on his shoulder coming out because, he, you know, the draft pick wasn't as high as it, you know, everybody felt it should have been. And he thought that he was undervalued and I'm going to show you. Well, he has shown everybody. But to, but to have a guy play this late into his career, into his 40s, and, you know, he's made a, a comment about playing until he's 50. You know what? I wouldn't put it past him. Jesus. I mean, it's crazy. They they showed a stat on uh, – on the uh, game the other night, about touchdown passes uh, past age 43. Tom Brady has 43 of them because he threw 43 this year. The next highest, George Blanda, who played for the old Oakland Raiders, had 12. And I think you know, I think, and I think George was like 45 or 46 that year. Um, George Blanda, if you, you know, for you youngsters, was a uh, uh, a kicker. He was a quarterback slash kicker back in the old uh, NFL AFL days. Uh, Blanda started out as a quarterback, but he was also the kicker, and then he was mostly a kicker late in his career. But because of a bunch of injuries late in the season, he had to play quarterback. I want to say Daryl Lamonica was the quarterback of the Raiders and got hurt one year. And Blanda, like, look, you know, he was completely gray-haired, uh, older than dirt and uh, had to start a quarterback for a number of games. But he did not play anywhere near the level that Tom Brady is playing, obviously. Nobody has ever done that and probably never will again. And and some of it's the money, I think. I mean, the fact that Brady is playing the way he is and all the money that he's made, he doesn't need to. I think a lot of guys won't play that long because they want to go spend their money and they want to still be able to be upright and healthy when they spend their money. 
You know, do I think Peyton Manning could have played a couple more years if he wanted to? Yeah, probably. But Peyton Manning had other things he wanted to do. I don't know what Tom Brady's going to do when he retires. He's going to—he might die. He's, you know. But uh, so I don't know if it's a travesty if he doesn't win. But man, when I looked at the numbers, because my—I really did. I thought, yes, like, yeah, come on, dude. You know, he—he he was good. I mean, and he's forty-four and all, and he was good. But he's wasn't that good. And yet, when you look at the numbers, you go, you know what? Uh, he was. Um, I still think Rogers will probably win it, although I still don't know how much backlash there's going to be over the whole vaccination debacle, as well as the uh, the rigmarole that went on before the season started. I don't know how much writers will hold that against them, and if you think they won't, you're. I mean, obviously we saw the one writer that said that he won't vote for him because he's a jerk. Who later walked that back saying, you know, maybe I should have kept that to myself, even if I felt that way. And I and th- I think there's plenty of writers that feel that way, that will keep it to themselves, but then won't vote for them. But you could, I mean, I, I think Aaron Rodgers probably should be the MVP. But it wouldn't shock me if Brady won it. And, you know, I don't think it's a travesty, but boy, he, boy. Again, th- all those numbers and, and you throw in the, the age factor there and it's it's damn impressive. Uh, one other NFL note: uh, Don Maynard passed away yesterday. For again, for you youngsters, let the let the old guy tell you about Don Maynard. Don Maynard is a guy that uh, played for uh, a few teams, but he is mostly known for his time with the New York Jets. And he was on that New York Jets team that won the Super Bowl over the Baltimore Colts, the game that Joe Namath guaranteed that they were going to win. Um, and the, the ironic part about this is Don Maynard, who's in the hall of fame, Don Maynard, who was a, a pro bowler and everything else, a great receiver, didn't catch a pass in that Super Bowl because he was hurt. He was a decoy, you know? So, uh, he was great in the, uh, uh, AFL championship game in 68. In Shea Stadium, he made a great. They played against the Raiders, and uh, he made a great catch, a big over-the-shoulder catch. I think he had uh, 118 yards receiving in that game. But a lot of the time uh, in that Super Bowl, he was just a decoy because he had a pulled hamstring. You know, he had actually sat out the last game of the regular season to try to rest it. You know, played in the championship game, didn't play in that last, and he lost the. Uh, uh, the yardage receiving title by 15 yards to Lance Allworth that year. Lance Allworth, who was a, a great receiver for the old Los Angeles Chargers. Um, but he said he told people all the time he traded 15 yards, uh, the 15 yards and the yardage title uh, for a Super Bowl and a $15,000 bonus. <laughs> so, uh, look, he, he made four, pro, four AFL Pro Bowls. He was on the AFL's only all-decade squad. Um had over uh, a thousand yards receiving a couple of times. Just uh, uh, a guy that you know he played. I think until 1973. I think he retired as a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, but when he retired in '73, he was the NFL's career receiving leader with 633 catches uh, for almost 12,000 yards and 88 touchdowns. So uh, he was pretty good. 
Uh, he was uh, elected to the uh, Hall of Fame in 1987. He passed away yesterday uh, at the age of uh, 86. Uh, let's see. What else we got? A couple other things. Um, uh, the Bruins, nice win yesterday. Jesus. I, I, I watched the beginning of this game uh, before I was going to switch over to the college football championship game. And, like, early into the game, the Bruins are down 2-0. Uh, Connor Sherry scored twice early, and the Caps are up 2-0, and you're going, oh, crap, here we go. But then uh, Brad Marchand got hit in the face with a high stick by Nick Dowd. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it opened up a pretty big gash on his nose. Uh, so they, they, you know, they had to clean up the ice and they patched him up on the, the bench. This is what I love about hockey players. Jesus is, I mean, he's bleeding like crazy. They got him on it. They got him on the, uh, on the bench and, you know, they're trying to stop the bleeding and they got, they got gauze stuffed up his nose and everything. And he comes back out and plays and scores on a five on three. And uh, then they score again, and the Bruins tie it up at the end of the uh, first period, 2-2. And then the second period started, and this game was over. Uh, Grizzlick with a goal, and then uh, uh, Craig Smith scored a goal. They're up 4-2, and then they just started pouring it on. And uh, I'll tell you, and, and uh, you know, you, a lot of people say what you want um, about some of the things that uh, uh, Patrice Bergeron is able to do offensively. Well, he made the play of the night defensively last night. Uh, Linus Olmark was uh, out of position, and the, the Capitals were going to have an easy goal. And uh, Kuznetsov is, like, winding up, and Bergeron dives across the net and throws his body in front of a shot that would have been into into the uh, uh, the open half of the net and makes the save. And, I mean, it was great. It was great. So, uh, Grizzlick with a nice night. Hit four assists to go along with that goal, five points. Uh, but Brad Marchand was the story of the night. Uh, a couple of goals and an assist and bleeding all over the place. And that's why I love hockey. 46 minutes past the hour. We've got to take another break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 48 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. Got a couple of more minutes before uh, we wrap it up here uh, this morning. Uh, the Celtics with a win last night. Uh, they beat the Indiana Pacers in overtime 101-98. to Jalen Brown with 26. Jason Tatum at 24. Uh, Robert Williams, big game, 14 points, 12 rebounds, and made a huge block uh, in the overtime. Uh, and uh, the Celtics pick up a much-needed win. Look, the Celtics have been... Uh, disappointing, no question about that. They're playing a little bit better of late, uh, but look, right now they are in a, pl- a play-in position. They're like the tenth seed in the uh, in the Eastern Conference, and when you've got talent, all-star talent like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, you expect this team to be better. You know, the problem that the Celtics have had is finding that complementary pieces around them. You know, Marcus Smart, a great defensive player, but uh, a guy that sometimes likes to shoot way too much, you know, and uh, and doesn't take high-quality shots. I think sometimes he hurts them on the offensive end. Uh, but but I think that's the thing with the Celtics. You have those two great guys, and, and Marcus Smart, for sure, he'd start anywhere. 
but you know it's those other pieces and and the and the bench you know the fact that they're really uh about six or seven deep if they've got to go a lot deeper than that uh you're in trouble but uh, a good win it's a home and home series with the uh indiana pacers they will play them again uh in indiana that one will be on wednesday night but uh uh, look, there's still plenty of time. The Celtics are only, what, 41 games in, so we're only about halfway there. So they've still got plenty of time, but, man, they gotta they got to figure this out. They have been uh, a mess. Um, some baseball news. How about that? I, God, I, you know, I hope supposedly the, uh, the owners uh, in Major League Baseball are going to have a new uh, economic proposal for the players coming up here in the next week or so. Uh, we are at a point where if we don't get this thing wrapped up in the next uh, two weeks, we're not going to have spring training, or at least it's going to be late. Uh, I still, as I've said all along, I, I expect we won't start the regular season until the middle of April. You know, I think uh, I think this is going to drag on, uh, but we'll see. But uh, anyway, so I missed talking about baseball, but here's some baseball news, and this is uh, just big news, you know, it, and and – uh, I don't want to. I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want to sound like a male chauvinist pig. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father of two daughters, so I'm all for uh, women's rights, and uh, we are going to have our first woman manager in professional baseball, or at least affiliated with Major League Baseball. Rachel Balkovic uh, is being hired by the Yankees to be the manager of the Tampa Tarpons, which is in their that are low A team. Uh, it's, you know, it's the, uh, the bottom rung, uh, of, of professional baseball. You know, it's where a lot of the guys that just get drafted are going to go and she is going to become their new manager. So good for her. Number one. Uh, but you look at it and you go, well, you know, it's just some kind of publicity stunt. First of all, I don't think the Yankees, the Yankees aren't the kind of team that are going to look for publicity stunts like that. So uh, they obviously think she's qualified. She's 34 years old. Look, here's her here's her resume. All right, she played a softball in college. She played at Creighton. She played at the University of New Mexico. Um, after she uh, uh, left college, she ended up working with the St. Louis Cardinals. She then worked with the Houston Astros back in 2016. Uh, she was hired as their Latin American strength and conditioning coordinator. So what she did, she learned to speak Spanish. So she is now bilingual, which is something, by the way, that a lot of managers are not. So and since the international uh, and especially Latin American players are such a big part of Major League Baseball now, this is huge. And then she be, after they hired her for that, she became the strength and conditioning coach at Double A Corpus Christi. So she's been as high as the Double A in uh, in professional baseball. Um, she left baseball in 2018 to get her, her a second master's degree. So she's also not a dope. Uh, but while she was getting her master's degree in the Netherlands, she worked with the country's national baseball and softball teams. And uh, most recently, she's been working with a company called Driveline Baseball. A uh, uh, it's a, a data-driven baseball center that, that trains uh, major leaguers uh, and then was hired by the Yankees as a hitting coach in 2019. She became she had already become the first woman with a, a job full-time in affiliated baseball, and but now she's working as a, a hitting coach in the minors. And now she's going to be a manager in the minors. So good for her. Uh, 
you know, look, I, I hope I hope she has some success. Look, there's no reason why women <clears throat> can't manage baseball. I have met a lot of women that know a lot of baseball. You know, there's there's this big thing if you go on Twitter, and a lot of women get angry about this stuff when it comes to sports. They call it mansplaining, as if, you know, people think that they're too dumb to understand sports and men are going to talk to them like they're, you know, two years old. Uh, there are a lot of women that are pretty sharp when it comes to baseball. You know, I think uh, I'm not a, I wasn't a big fan of her as a broadcaster, but I think Jessica Mendoza, who worked for ESPN, probably could manage baseball, a, a major league team if she wanted to, if somebody would give her the chance. I absolutely think she could. Uh, you know, and there are others out there. She's not the only one. Uh, then other news for women in baseball. This is another cool story down in Australia, down in Melbourne. Uh, a 17 year old by the name of Gene- Genevieve Beacom. Uh, she made history as the first female pitcher for an Australian professional baseball team. Uh, she had signed with the uh, Melbourne aces of the, the, the major leagues down there as a development player. And then on Saturday, she appeared in a game against the Adelaide Giants and pitched an inning. She allowed no runs and no hits. She did give up. Uh, she did walk a batter and had to work around an error. Uh, she's a lefty. Uh, people say, and, I, and I, I watched the video, and her, her delivery will remind you a little bit of uh, John Lester. Obviously doesn't throw as hard as Lester, but... She, uh, her location was pretty good. And, you know, and, and I think, do I think a woman is going to pitch in major league baseball? Hmm. I, my gut is no, but then again, there have been guys in major league baseball that have uh, succeeded, especially lefties, you know, guys like Jesse Orozco and, and people like that, that don't throw a million miles an hour, but can get by with breaking balls and location and, uh, you know, a change of pace kind of thing from guys that come out of the bullpen now and throw 100 miles an hour. So I'm not going to say she can't or somebody can't, but I think we're still a little ways away from that. But good for Genevieve Beacom, and she's hoping uh, to play college baseball in the United States. She's 17 years old, so she's planning on coming here to play uh, baseball in the States. So, um, And you know what? She will get a chance to pitch in college. It may not be at the D1 level, but I'm, I guarantee you there'll be, there'll be a D3 team that would give her a chance to pitch for them. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it, and, and it may be in, in some respects a little bit of a uh, a publicity thing, but I absolutely think she'll get an opportunity. And, hey, look, who knows? Who knows? And as a, a father of daughters, I'm all for it. And uh, so congratulations uh, to both ladies. Uh, one a manager and one a player, Rachel Balkovic. And Genevieve Beacom making history uh, for women uh, when it comes to professional baseball. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back on Thursday with another edition of The Wake Up Call. No show tomorrow, but we'll be here on Thursday and Friday. We leave you this morning with some music from Hootie and the Blowfish, a little Hold My Hand. We'll see you on Thursday. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.